Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning on this uh, little bit breezy morning up here in Fort Collins. I understand down in Denver, too, we're going to have some wind today. You know, today, just might, this morning, if you're not out hunting, this morning might be the best morning for you to sit and listen to the show. And we're going to talk a lot of fishing today. We're going to take you both to some remaining open water opportunities, and we're going to get ready for ice fishing. We're going to be previewing some of the mountain lakes, which will be ready really soon and then we'll be telling you what to look for on the front range. We're going to have a lot of special guests. We're also going to talk about how the wildlife uh, fared during some of the big fires we had, what to expect from those populations, how they'll affect their migrations. Uh, and on my Facebook page, uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, I posted a chart on ice thickness that's put out by several agencies, uh, several departments of uh, uh, fish and game and things like that. And we're going to talk about that later in the show when Nate Zielinski comes on, too, about ice safety, because it's so important. Ice, the one thing I will say is I always say there's no such thing as safe ice, but ice fishing can be one of the safest sports out there as long as you use common sense. So we'll talk more, we'll talk more about that. And when uh, second hour, when Brad Peterson comes on, we're not only going to talk a little bit of fishing, but we're going to talk some waterfowl, and we'll follow that up with some shotgunning. So we've got a really full show. Right now, let's go right to the phones. I'm very excited to have our next guest on. He's a legend in the ice fishing community. He's a good friend of mine. You've seen him on television shows, including mine. Uh, you've seen him on ads all over the place. You see him on Facebook. Uh, Brian Bro Brosdahl. Good morning, bro. Hey, good morning, Terry. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, and you know, we are actually probably going to see some ice fishing here. Maybe if it's even in the, I'm sure there's some lakes that are frozen already in our high country, but we're going to see some of the more popular lakes icing up probably in just a week or so. What's it looking like up in Minnesota? Oh, that's great. Well, up here, it's never-ending wind, and uh, the lakes want to freeze because the water temperature's there, and they freeze and then they bust open with heavy winds, a lot of uh, 14 to 30-mile-an-hour gusts and uh, just tearing the ice apart. But you know what? Winter winds, eventually it all stacks up and freezes. Yep, it will. We'll get there. And want to talk to you about a number of things um, today, some new, uh, some new equipment that's going on. And I want to talk about your college of ice. But before I even get to that, um, think of where we've come from. Uh, I mean, I go back to you know, the original pop-up shelters and and using electronics. And, and before we had any of that, I used to sit on a bucket with a, a, a pool cue-like thing with a minnow fishing for crappies. We've just come so far to make ice fishing a really great experience, haven't we? Absolutely, and, and everybody loves it. I mean, it's amazing how many people want to learn to ice fish or people who've always ice fished, but it's a growing sport. And people are excited about it. I, I can't even begin to tell you how excited they are. Well, it's come so far with the clothing, the shelters, the equipment we've got. Um, there's no reason to be uncomfortable anymore, and there's every reason to be successful if you just pick up a few tips. 
And along those lines, you and a good friend of mine, uh, Steve Panaz, are putting on something called the College of Ice. Tell me about that. College of Ice is is uh, teaching the uh, ice fishing community some tips and tricks, as well as you know uh, having guests on because you always learn from guests and guests from all over the ice belt, not just one local area. It's 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 all over the place. And talking about ice fishing in different areas, what's going on? Uh, our our little secrets on on getting on fish, and then interviewing. Uh, store managers and what's what's in stock what's available what's it looking like and not just one store all over the place we're kind of targeting everything in ice and you know being uh that a lot of our shows got shut down uh obviously for obvious reasons um we wanted to keep going with it because i've done the bro road show for so many years where i go to stores and do seminars and visits this is just uh, adding on to that and with steve as a host there's uh, someone that can help me do a lot of legwork and uh, and uh, uh, research and helping, and it's it's always good to have a tag team sometimes. Now it's already started. If people want to go catch up on back episodes or listen to the live episodes, tell them where it's at and when they are. Absolutely, go to go to fravel.com, or you can look on my uh, my Facebook sites, College of Ice, and they're they're easy to find. Just type in College of Ice; it'll come right up and it was really nice. This past episode, we had Jeff Kolodinsky Colo from uh, Humminbird on talking about some uh, 360, which is coming out, which is uh, uh, it shoots every direction all the time and hands free. And then uh, it was a great interview and, uh, and and got some insight into what's going on, as well as talking about other other tricks along the way and where ice is at in different areas. And it's starting to form here and there across the midwest and uh, usually we get it early but you know we need this this restless wind to settle down now it's it's on facebook live is where you watch it do you get comments and questions from the audience while it's going on absolutely it, it, it's live and we we get uh uh feedback and and i i love it because i can see uh, people are saying hi from all over the country and and uh and they have questions and we get to them as we can we're we're you know, we try to hit as I try to hit as many as I can because I just love talking to people. And then, of course, we have we have a, a show to put on, and only so much time to do it. So we do as much as we can, but it's live streaming, and uh, and every everybody uh, can really be a part of it. And that's what it's about. It's 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 a community of ice. College of ice is really the community of ice, and that's what we uh, we want to uh, shoot for. And uh, it's it's been great. It's been uh, uh, highly viewed and. And I hope we can grow it and uh, and just get people aware and get them out on the ice. That's the most important thing to me. I want to see participation in the sport. Now, doing the College of Ice, what have you done, about two or three episodes so far? We've done two episodes, and we got one coming up tomorrow night at 7. Uh, our time, which would be, that would be 6 your time? Or are you, you're, yep. you're one hour off. But, uh, yep. Yep. It's and what tune is, in then, and if you, go, go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, what is some of, what is, is there one really interesting comment or question or one common theme that's come up in comments? Anything that kind of came, surprised you or that seems to really generate interest? Well, you know, they, everybody wants to know, uh, is, is there ice? Uh, and they want to know ice. A lot of people want to talk about ice safety. They want to know um, how how to approach different fish and different techniques and 
and uh, different knots. We had a lot of questions about different knots to use, and that's going to be part of the coverage here Sunday. We're going to go into uh, the, some of the strongest knots and some of the stuff that won a knot wars back in the North, North American fishermen days. And so uh, a lot of high-tech stuff, and, but we, we don't want to go over the top of it either. We want to we want everybody to have fun. And uh, if you have a question, definitely shoot it through and uh, live, and we can we can get to it as we can. And there's uh, a big giveaway, too, and it's right at the end of the show. Uh, right when the show closes, we will give away based on uh, uh, shares, and if people come on and have a good question or if they share the program, it's a it's a random drawing, and um, Kai, the producer, will do that, and then then we will uh, come back on a moments later, minutes later, and give away a prize. And so every every night somebody wins the big Frable prize package. So it's Christmas early. All you got to do is listen and share. All right, let's get into some of the equipment, some of the new things. You talked about that Humminbird was on, and they have their new 360. You know, I remember starting out with a flasher on the ice, and then I, I've got a Humminbird uh, unit that I use on the ice quite a bit myself that is uh, it's a type that you would have in your boat, but it's the total graph, but it does have a flasher screen. Tell me about the new 360. What makes it different? What does it give me? Well, 360 is... Yeah, you know, they, Humminbird came out with side imaging, and then they came out with 360, which is a look completely in 360 degrees around you. And you could set it at uh, you could set it out over 120 feet, but accuracy or to be able to see fish on a screen, depending on what screen you are looking at. I like to bring it in a little bit, maybe 50 to 75 feet. You're shooting a beam. You could watch fish all around you and see where they're swimming through, or you drop it down, turn it on. And as the radar goes off, you'll see where the, the panfish are. But it doesn't just show fish that are off the bottom. It shows bottom-dwelling fish, and that's why I'm excited about it. I've had a chance to use everything out there. And last year, I used 360. We were on Malax, and we were watching schools of walleyes move through. And all we had to do was move about 70 feet, and we were just hammering them. And and it's amazing. It, then, then they'll move back. It, it's like they have their different cryptic cruising lanes, and it was neat to watch them come through in little squadrons, look like little fighter jets, and uh, it was fun to watch. And they were right by the bottom, and that's that's the key thing about this technology. And uh, and they've they've made it ice friendly by ha- having a kit that you could set it on the ice, and you don't even need a handle, but the kit comes with a handle, uh, and you could choose which direction to shoot the beam. But what I like about it, you drop it down the hole, your hands free, and you just go and. It's like uh, uh, the virtual world of fishing, and you can see what's going on. And I've actually used it on a, on a bar with a weed line and, and seen a large walleye go through repeatedly, went over and drilled a hole and caught that fish. And uh, so I had a chance to use it last winter. I really like it. And uh, with with technology like that, the, the bigger the screen, for me, the better. Uh, you could use it on a, a 8, 9, 10-inch screen. But I'm actually going to – I've got it hooked up to a 12-inch screen because – it's what I had in my boat, and uh, I'm powering it with a lithium battery, a Dakota lithium. I actually have uh, two batteries in, in just a little hummingbird cradle. And what I've done, because lithium, you don't have to set it up straight up and down. I've turned them sideways and stacked them so you could have a lot of power. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, uh, ice 
the electronics and ice fishing, people who haven't used even the basic electronics, it turns it almost into a video game. I don't know how many people I've heard comment, I thought ice fishing would be dull till I started watching electronics and seeing fish and watching my lure, and it really opens up a new world to people. Bro, we only have a couple minutes left, but I know that every year you try to experiment with a couple new presentations. Why don't you give us a couple tips maybe on a couple new lures or a couple lures you're using more this year? Absolutely. Uh, there's a fire belly spoon. The uh, buckshot rattle spoon is, is legendary, and the shape is what's getting bites. I've used every shape there is, but that one just gets bit, and now they have a light stick that goes into the buckshot rattle spoon, and I was waiting for this. We've had light sticks in uh, buckshot flutter spoons, but now we got it in the buckshot uh, rattle spoon that's called the fire belly spoon, and then also uh, the rattling puppet, which is uh, actually designed, it's a forward darting bait, Without a, front tra- without a front hook so you don't get hooked on the ice, and a bigger back hook, which is great for lake trout, big walleyes, northerns, anything. But that little rattle chamber makes a big deal, and that thing really flies and has sticky, sharp hooks. That's, and the colors are real cool, too. Check it out, the rattling puppet or the fire belly spoon. And I had a chance to use them last year, and we got some lakes up here, Red Lake, Lake of the Woods, and we just crushed them on them. And uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be a, a, a big deal. Uh, and they're going to work great for trout, too. So just just uh, match the hatch and use the right colors. I think, And those are both put out by um, by Northland, Northland Tackle, which is which you've been associated with for years. The, the rattling puppet is uh, the glide minnows that have become so popular in open water, but they've always been a super effective ice ice bait, and the puppet minnow by Northland has always been right there and with the rattle in it. I'm, I'm anxious to try that. And the light, we hear more and more about glow and light and putting that light. I've got a several buckshot rattle spoons myself. I'm going to have to get some of the some of the firebelly spoons and give those a try. Bro, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I know you also wanted to send some kudos out to, to Aquaview, who have done so much with you and their cameras for underwater. Absolutely. Without Aquaview, I wouldn't have half the bites I get. I actually watched the fish on my uh, uh, my Revolution 5 Pro because i actually looking down in down view mode, and I could watch the bluegills, even walleyes, come in and take it. With that micro camera, they're not as aware of it, not as spooky works really well so check it out it's micro revolution pro it's the original and really cool invention for aquaview plus their hd models are nice also for open water and in a fish house all right and then again the college of ice the next episode is tomorrow if people want to catch up or find out more tell them again where they go yeah just go to Frayville, or you can check it out on uh, brian bro brostall's facebook page but it's uh, it's going to be on frayville.com and type in College of Ice, and it'll go right to it. You'll see it. And it's it's all about getting the community of ice fishing. All right, my friend, we need to get back on the water again one day soon. It's been a while. Absolutely. Come on up. I'm ready anytime. All right. Thank you, my friend. Bring Thank Karen, you for joining you know, us today. Karen catches you them bet. all. Okay. Yeah, she outfishes us. Why do I want to bring her? Then <laughs> I want to catch the fish. <laughs> Thank you, bro. Well, tell her hi. Okay, I will. You bet. Bro Bro's doll, great guy, great fisherman. Um, Hope you enjoyed that. We're going to take a time out. We come back. We're going to talk a little bit about the Wildlife Council here in Colorado and what purposes they serve and how they can help the outdoor community on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. I tell you, with the weather changing, if you're going to keep doing 
getting outdoors and you need to, Jacks can really help you with all the clothing, the different layers, the specialty clothing to make that outdoor experience comfortable. We're going to go to the phones. Um, I misspoke as we were leaving. I said Wildlife Commission. We're actually going to talk about the Wildlife Council. And joining us from the Wildlife Council is Garrett Boudinot. Uh Good morning, Garrett. Morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing good. And the Wildlife Commission and Council are both very important and very, very uh, do special, uh, have special purposes. But the Wildlife Council is quite different. Why don't you tell us, what is the Wildlife Council? Absolutely. So the Wildlife Council uh, runs a public education campaign, uh, really to build awareness of and support for all the great wildlife conservation work that goes on in the state. Uh, And we're particularly focused on reminding folks about how that wildlife conservation work is funded, which, as a lot of us know, is through, or primarily through hunting and fishing licenses. Uh, So we run ads on TV and online. Uh, You might have seen our This is the Wildlife campaign. Uh, And then we also, for the first time this summer, ran an in-person outreach uh, across the state at farmers markets and state parks, again, to really build awareness of how all that great wildlife conservation work uh, is made possible. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the hunters and anglers become aware of what we call the North American model, which is where hunting and fishing licenses have funded most of our conservation efforts through divisions of wildlife, um, DNRs, game management. Not that there aren't other sources, but a huge amount of that funding comes from there. But everybody gets to take advantage of it because that management, then let's take Colorado Parks and Wildlife. They get the most of their funding from hunting and fishing licenses. They go out and then they, they manage the habitat, they manage the animals, they manage the control, which then provides habitat for everybody to recreate outdoors, whether you're wildlife watching, hiking, um, bird watching, or you're just enjoying the outdoors, fishing, whatever you're doing. But it, the money really comes from some very finite sources, doesn't it? That's right. Absolutely. And and that's uh, it, it's no secret that this summer we saw more and more folks getting out in the great outdoors and recreating. Uh, and, and a lot of those folks uh, don't hunt or fish and may not even know folks that hunt or fish. And so we found it really important to make everyone aware of, of how these resources are made available for all of us. Well, you, you and I talked earlier and you made a comment because you did do in-person contact this year, went out to these places and you said one of the biggest impacts you got was most non-hunters and anglers weren't aware of how all that was funded. I think a lot of them think it just comes out of the general tax fund, don't they? That's right. Absolutely. Um, and when we uh, told folks about uh, the long history of hunting and fishing in Colorado, how important it is to conservation, and how important it even is to just the general economy in Colorado, generates an impact of about $3 billion to the Colorado economy. It was really surprising to a lot of folks. Yeah, it really is. It really does have that kind of an impact. Um, I think it's incumbent on sportsmen. You, you, you made a point that we're getting, we're seeing so many people going outdoors, and we love it because, you know, my whole career has been dedicated to getting people into the outdoors just to rebond with nature, and that helps them become conservationists and appreciate our outdoors and our habitat and help preserve those resources. But I think it's incumbent on the sportsmen, the hunters and the anglers, 
maybe to have polite conversations with some of the other users about how the funding takes place, don't you? Absolutely. Um, I mean, this is a, a shared resource that we're, we're you know, our, our public lands, our wildlife, our scenic vistas, these are things that we all enjoy. And hunters and fishers uh, have been tasked with supporting a lot of the funding for, for generations. And in order to make sure that uh, hunting and fishing can continue and those uh, opportunities can continue to uh, go on in Colorado for generations, we need to talk to folks about it and make folks aware uh, of the importance of those activities for everyone in Colorado. So what are some of the other activities? You talked about your commercials. Do you plan more in-person interaction? How do you go forward from here to get the message out? Absolutely. So uh, trying to start an in-person outreach program this summer was particularly challenging uh, with all the things going on with physical distancing. Uh, but we were able to make it work at outdoor venues. Uh, what folks can expect to see in the coming years is more and more of these in-person outreach uh, programs, particularly at uh, other events. So, again, we, we did state parks and farmers markets. We expect to be at concerts, sporting events, um, other outdoor recreation opportunities, uh, hopefully in perpetuity, because we found, you know, we can have ads online that, and on TV, and that helps get the message across. But having face-to-face -face interactions with folks is uh, a really unique way to convey the importance of hunting and fishing, get into the intricacies of how conservation funding and conservation uh, programs work in the state. Uh, and so you will, you will definitely see the Wildlife Council uh, present more and more uh, in Colorado. Last question I have for you. As we move forward and more people go out, we're going to see more people fishing and hunting, I'm sure of that. But I think we're even going to see a bigger number just hiking, enjoying the outdoors, mountain biking, wildlife watching, bird watching, things like that. Um, what's the public attitude when maybe you guys talk to them and they understand that there could come a point where they may have to pick up some of the bill? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, one thing that we found is that when we talked to folks about the benefits of hunting and fishing, a lot of folks were then open to becoming hunters or fishers. Uh, we had a lot of folks who, uh, as, as after they talked to us, said that they wanted to go out and buy a fishing license and become part of that hunting and angling community. Uh, and so hopefully, uh, sure, as folks get outside and recreate more, they'll find new ways to recreate and in, encourage uh, or incorporate hunting and fishing as part of their repertoire of ways to enjoy the great outdoors. And that's a way that we can uh, make sure that that funding continues for generations to come. All right. We've got about 30 seconds left. If people want more information on the Wildlife Council or if there's ways they can help you in any way with volunteers or donations, what could they do? Absolutely. So if you want to uh, go online, we've got a website at cowildlifecouncil.org. We've also got a Instagram and Facebook page that folks can check out to see what we're doing. Um, and then we work in partnership with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And so we ask folks if they want to volunteer or get involved, there's lots of opportunities that they can find through our website or through CPWs to volunteer, buy those licenses, just get out and, and uh, contribute to the conservation community here in Colorado. All right, Garrett, great work. It's important. I think that we're all learning how to share the outdoors with the influx of people that are 
taking advantage of it. And this is just one other way that we help get that message there. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Terry. You bet. That's Garrett from the uh, Wildlife Council Outreach Team. Um, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to talk about what effect the fires had on some of the big game animals in Colorado. All that and more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. 65 years of helping people get outdoors. And if you need something for your outdoor adventures, Jack's has it. Try one of their locations. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Angelique Curtis. Good morning, Angelique. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Well, great to have you on. You know, we went through a pretty horrific wildfire season at seems to be winding down. I'm sure there's still mopping up going on and they're not all out, but we seem to have turned the corner on it. And we we certainly don't want to minimize the the human tragedy. People lost homes and uh, even some lives were lost in some of these fires. So, but there's other effects too and I think a lot of the listeners to this show are kind of interested what happened to like an elk herd during this and I know your area of specialty would be the Cameron Peak fire. So kind of take us through maybe before what happened during the fire, what happens in a scenario like this or what did happen in that area? Yeah, sure. So the Cameron Peak fire started on August 13th. In the caller data that I have from my elk, there's about 30 elk I have collared right now. And there is eight or nine elk that were up in the Rewa and the Long Draw Basin. And that was their summer range. So they had calved in an area already, brought their calves to their summer range, and then the fire started. And as the fire grew um, and the smoke filled some of the valleys and everything, the elk didn't really move too much from their areas. Um, They may have moved over a basin to get out of smoke, but they really didn't move off the range. And, in fact, as the fire kept progressing and active fire decreased in some of these areas like the Comanche Peak Wilderness, the elk would actually go into those areas where there's some unburnt habitat and start using that area. So in all, what I can say that I know right now, and I haven't done a thorough analysis, but the elk were not moved by the fire too far. And um, so I guess the take home from that is, is that although the fire is very detrimental um, as far as Lose, people losing homes and losing land, it actually didn't do much to the megafauna. All right. So that's um, was part of that. And I know that the, we also had the, the troublesome fire, which you don't monitor, but they had maybe a little different experience because it went so far so fast. And we'll maybe try to get some information on that in the next coming weeks. Now, was the reason they didn't have to move much? Is Was it just because of where they were for the time of the year or was it because that beetle kill just wasn't really great habitat anyway well yeah the beetle kill habitat isn't generally where the elk hang out um, because they use the meadows for feeding during the day and they use the timber for their bedding and thermal cover during um, parts of the days when they're ruminating so they weren't in that dense beetle kill they were more up on the tundra so up higher in elevation where the fire really couldn't get to so much and so um and in in some of the areas in the 
Comanche wilderness, they're actually in the big meadows up on top in like May Creek drainage where that wouldn't burn anyway because it's pretty wet up there. Now, is it typical when we have fires like this that the deer and the elk and even some of the other big game like bighorn sheep and aren't as affected or are some more affected than others or is it pretty typical that their instincts help them survive? For the most part, their instincts help them survive. It's an innate instinct. They're born with it to leave an area when they sense danger. Um, but I would say some animals are more effective than others. Bighorn sheep, um, I can say this fire moved them off of their area, um, partly because of where it burned up on the Pooter um, the Poudre, uh River corridor, and so a lot of their winter range burned. And so I do not know how that's going to affect them this winter as far as um, where they're going to go to. So, uh, in, But with deer and elk, this was their summer range that burned, and so they're able to move down into their winter range. So they're not quite as affected as, say, the bighorn sheep are from this particular fire. Now, the, the last point I kind of want to cover with you is that we've seen the animals. We Hopefully, it looks like there was a huge survival rate that we may have changed some areas, may have been some migration, but the habitat wasn't that supportive of big game anyway where that beetle kill was because it's so dense, and it's going to take time, but what do you see happening to that habitat now as we recover from the burn? I think in the next year or two there's going to be some areas that are going to be great habitat it opened it up we're going to have new forbs and grasses coming through where they couldn't get through because of the beetle kill and the crown coverage of trees i mean overall this fire is actually really great for the habitat i just wish it would have burned less and then in multiple years but i think Doing some habitat restoration that the Forest Service is going to do will enhance the habitat for big game and for um, small mammals. So overall, I think the fire is going to do really well in this area. Now, as far as people getting into some of these areas, some are states, some are Forest Service, different types of lands. Can we expect some of these to bounce back fairly quickly or will we see closures for quite a while? Um, I think in some of the areas that were burned the most, like burned the hottest, we probably will see closures in there for a while because it's just too dangerous for people to go in. Even myself, I wouldn't want to go in there because of the falling trees that can occur or you can step into a hole and fall down in and break a leg. Um, so I don't see some of these areas opening up real quickly. It just kind of depends on what the Forest Service uh, decides as what's safe and what's not safe in the next year. Well, it sounds like, I mean, obviously we all would have rather seen this beetle kill burn a little bit and then burn a little bit next year, but we all kind of knew this was coming. Hopefully, you know, that the human tragedy can be mitigated, and we certainly don't want to minimize that. But in the long term, I've been through Yellowstone National Park since their big fire, and it's just beautiful again. And I think we can expect the Colorado wilderness to bounce back. And it may take a while, but to bounce back similarly, right? Yeah, I, I believe you're right on that. I think um, it's going to come back even better than it has been in the past 20 years. So, like I said, I think this fire is really going to actually enhance the wilderness experience. 
All right. Well, Angelique, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's great feedback because I don't think a lot of people understand how it affects the animals. Are they able to get out? Do they die in the fires? And of course, some probably did, but it doesn't have, it actually ends up with a net positive effect that we'll all gain from in, in the long term. Thank you from joining for joining us. Yes. Thank you, Terry. You bet. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right through the phones. Um, We're going to cover the next three segments. We're going to have quite a bit of fishing, and we're going to have some waterfall and then some shotgunning. So we got a lot of ground to cover. So let's go to the phones. Joining us is Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, you know, we're in kind of a shoulder season now. Some of the open water, especially in the mountains, some of the open water is either ramping down or is over. Uh, The conditions are changing on the front range. We probably won't get ice here for a while, but the boat ramps will close in a couple weeks. The opportunities will be different. So you really have to spend a little more time thinking and planning this time of the year, or maybe pick a few of these days to get your tackle readjusted. How do you approach this time of the year? So, I mean, there's definitely options, as you mentioned. Uh, some walleye have been doing okay. Bite's been definitely a little bit slower. But right now, if I'm not heading out hunting, I'm thinking about ice fishing, like you mentioned. I mean, we're going to be getting into a great season, and, and that early ice uh, in, in that uh, right around Thanksgiving into the first couple of weeks of December really is one of the best and most productive times for, for big rainbows and browns in the high country. Oh, it really is. Early ice. And in the next segment, we're going to ca- talk a lot about ice safety. So we want to really stress that. But let's talk a little bit first. I want to talk mostly ice fishing. But if you if somebody just wants to get out, you can still get your boat out, get out from shore. Maybe a couple places you might send them. Yeah, so, I mean, Aurora's been doing okay. Same thing with Chatfield. I mean, I'm kind of emphasizing the okay right now. It hasn't been fantastic. Uh, there's been a few walleyes and smallmouth that are going. We can get another cold front in before uh, the, the tail end of boating here. Maybe we can get it to fire off. But it definitely has been a somewhat of a strange fall. Trout uh, haven't been stocked everywhere yet, but we're starting to see some of those come into the lakes. So those can be good even after the boat ramp's close. You can get good action on the shorelines there. Um, and then maybe even a little bit of open water action in some of your bigger water in the mountains, although lakes like Antero are starting to see some ice. Yeah, what about what about fly fishing? There should be some still some great fly fishing opportunities. Yeah, and there will be all the way through the wintertime. So you're, the, the thing that we uh, have such a good opportunity with in Colorado is how many tailwaters we have. So these regulated flows underneath these dams really can provide open water all year long. So you can get into a situation even close somewhere like Deckers or South Boulder Creek, both of which fish differently, but have really good opportunities uh, for, for good numbers of fish up in places like that. But even sliding up into the mountains a bit further and going up to places like the Blue River, or if you want to make a longer range run and go to the Taylor or the Frying Pan, all of which stay open all year long. And, and you have browns that are still doing a little bit of spawning activity in those areas, but uh, throwing a lot of betas patterns, egg flies, and then micey shrimp in places like Dillon and the Taylor and on the frying pan where there's mices in the lakes, all can be very, very productive. But then up on, on Deckers, the betas have been very good. Small RS2 emergers as well as juju betas have been effective up there. And then some midge patterns, certainly, with eggs and leeches mixed in as well, all uh, fishing on nymph rigs. 
All right, let's turn to the upcoming ice. Uh, have you heard of any place where they're getting on the ice yet, or are we just a little early? I think we're a touch early. I mean, I've heard of a couple of people up in unnamed, very, very high country lakes that they've been hiking into. But uh, for the most part, I have not really heard much as far as reports on any of those type of locations um, quite uh, as of yet. Now, you mentioned about trout and then the lakes that have stock trout. Um, I remember taking part in some surveys with Parks and Wildlife many well, decades ago. It was they were two different entities then. It was the you know, and they did catch rate analysis and lakes that were heavily stocked with trout and ones that even had big holdover trout. They found that the catch rate through the ice was almost double of it was in open water. Now we have a lot of new anglers going out this year. Uh, and, and like I said, next uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk some ice safety. But once we establish some of those criteria, what are some of the ways you approach some of these lakes after they first freeze? So to start with, uh, I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, but go ahead and spend that extra $10 and change on a second rod stamp. It definitely helps quite a bit. But what I end up doing, a lot of times the, the early morning and late evening time periods when we're talking about this ice fishing is an important time frame even on open ice. So if you're heading out there, legitimately get up early and, and do it on that early morning or wait and go the afternoon through the evening. If you're out there and, and doing that that 9 or 10 o'clock until 2 o'clock kind of range, a lot of times you'll miss your really good window. So getting out there early is a, a key. Now, the other thing I like to look at is, is I'll, I'll position myself either on a place like a river channel or if you can find uh, an area with a weed edge or even off of a point, trying to find somewhere that's going to direct those trout to you. So it's a little bit different than walleyes and bass where they're not necessarily sitting on a specific structure point, but if you can find an area that they're being directed to where you are, that definitely is a key. So what I tend to end up doing is I set start with on my, my second rod stamp a dead stick. So I'll drop down with a, a small jig, many times brightly colored, like a, a pink or an orange. And I like small tube jigs, like a Trout Traps tube jig or a Berkeley Atomic tube, um, or even something like a, a Rat Finky from Custom Jigs and Spins. And pretty darn small. So in that neighborhood of a 164th of an ounce, drop down and have it sit there with either on an actual bobber or a spring bobber being hung out on the end of my rod so I can see a very light bite. And then on my main rod, if I really feel like I'm on a lot of fish, I'll continue to jig something that's a soft plastic, something a little bit larger, like a trout trap stinger, um, or something like a, a rat, so with a small tail on the back of it. If I'm not finding a lot of fish, I'm going to either be moving, or I will put down a, a little spoon. So something like a slender spoon, a buckshot rattle spoon, or even as simple as a cast master, all can be jigged. And then typically on all of these applications, I'm tipping them with either a wax worm or a mealworm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm a firm believer in, and unless you're just catching so many fish that it's hard to handle two rods, that having an active and a passive presentation just gives you so many more options. In fact, I can tell you, I filmed in, uh, a show up at uh, Dowdy, and um, in fact, if you go to my YouTube channel, Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, you'll find a number of ice fishing shows filmed right here in the Colorado waters with lots of tips. But I filmed a show up at Dowdy where... Um, Karen and I put the AquaView cameras down. We were purposely watching the fish. Now, a lot of times I can catch a lot of fish on that jigging spoon. On Dowdy, I couldn't catch a lot, but they were. But Karen was catching a lot on a jig. We were each fishing one presentation. 
So I took the spoon out since we were catching quite a bit of fish, put a second jig down. Bite almost stopped immediately. The fish went away. We could see them in the distance on the aqua view. But even even Karen stopped catching fish, which is unbelievable, right? So, so, so then I put the spoon back down and started jigging again. And immediately fish came back and Karen started catching them. But we never caught them on the spoon. The other really cool thing that I'll do with that, because I've seen that same thing in the past where it'll really draw fish in, but I'll even take my treble hook off of my spoon sometimes, and I'll put a little dropper line down below, just a piece of fluorocarbon, six, six pound or so, um, just a couple of inches, five, five inches at the maximum, and then put one of my little jigs down below my spoon. So it acts just as a little flasher to draw some fish in, and then you can still catch them on that same rod, because sometimes they're very aggressive and they eat that spoon. But then there's other times that they just want that smaller jig presentation. So you can see them come in on your flasher, and uh, or even if, you, if you're if you in a hut and you can look down and, and see them, you can kind of raise that spoon out of, out of their face once they're in, and they'll eat that little jig too. Austin, we're out of time. If people want more information or see some of the lures you showed, talked about, where can they find you? I'm at Discount Fishing Tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right. My friend, as always, great talking to you. Thanks so much, Terry. You bet. Austin Parr. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back. Nate Solinsky is going to join us. We're going to talk a lot of ice fishing with Nate, including ice safety on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.